Well, hey, everyone. I'm Logan, and you're listening to LV's Music Corner. On today's episode of LV's Music Corner, we are joined by drummer Joe Vitale. Joe has worked with Joe Walsh to Peter Frampton to the Eagles, as well as Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and sometimes Young. Joe is here with me to share some of his stories and talk about his studio albums as well as his book. I hope you enjoy this episode of LV's Music Corner with special guest Joe Vitale. Folks, I'm here with Joe Vitale, and this is a guy you've heard play on all sorts of your favorite records, and you just never knew who the name was. And he's here with me today, and it's great to be speaking with him. Glad to be here, Logan. Hey, buddy. Uh, so let's talk about gr- uh, growing up. Um, you've you've always been a Ohio native, right? That's correct. So, what was it that your parents were doing? Well, um, uh, my father was a musician. My brother was a musician. All my uncles were musicians. So uh, I kind of had no choice, I guess. But uh, I was around music since I could remember. And um, my father and his brothers would get together on Friday night and have a couple of beers and jam. And I mean, this was way back in the early 50s. And um, I was always around and I'd go downstairs and listen to them and and I uh, just uh, love music, and I, I was uh, beating up my mom's pots and pans, and so my dad said, you're going to be a drummer. <laughs> so um, I started very young. I started taking lessons when I was six. Oh, my. That's, uh, that's a pretty young age to get started with. Well, you know, it, 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 it was good. I think young kids have a little bit more energy to, you know, to – to get in, into stuff and, and, and practice and just be a little more dedicated and have, have young people got a lot of passion for what they're doing, and whether it's music, sports, education, whatever it is. And uh, the, I guess the older you get, the, <laughs> the, the lazier you get or something. But um, uh, but I was uh, I'm so blessed to have started when I did. And uh, my father, being a musician, he he really knew really, really good teachers and um uh, they got me started on the right track. And, uh, the funny thing is, uh, my father was a barber and we were, we grew up pr- uh, pretty poor and, um, uh, he really couldn't afford lessons. So he gave my drum teacher haircuts for drum lessons, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, we got, we got the job done one way or another. Oh yeah. So what, what did mom do? Mom cooked <laughs> and what a cook she was. Um, she uh, raised three kids and uh, stayed at home and uh, stay at home mom. And um, uh, she, uh, you know, we, you know, back in the fifth, we grew up in the fifties as children and um, uh, it was a whole different world then. And certainly than what we're, we have now. And uh, uh, I really prefer it. It was a lot mellower and just everyday life. And, and there were, I don't think there was nearly as, as much stress in the world and in your life. And, and we just had a nice little family and, uh, we grew up and, um, we learned music, went to school and I, I wouldn't trade it for the world. I'd love to go back sometime. <laughs> so, 
So you're one of three children. So where are you in the lineup? Or are you the oldest? I'm or? in the middle. Oh, you're the I'm middle. The, I'm in the middle. Yeah. Okay. Um, you and your dad had a polka band of of That's all right. things. Talk a little yeah, bit about that. Well, um, it my brother. My brother passed away in in 1997. But when we were young, my brother was a few years older than me. He was a bass player, and I was a drummer. And my father played accordion, and so. Uh, my dad was playing out all the time. He, my dad had three jobs just to make ends meet, but, but the most fun one he did was playing music. So he brought uh, me and my brother in. I was 14. I was playing with my father at, you know, parties and weddings and different things. And, and uh, he had a nice little polka band and we played a, a lot of, a lot of gigs. And um, uh, unfortunately in 1964, when the Beatles were on Ed Sullivan, that kind of, put all that to a halt changed my life forever oh yeah i think uh, most musicians from that sort of age bracket can say that you know logan everyone i've ever talked to that's around my age they all said the same thing they saw the beatles on ed sullivan uh february 9th 1964 and and that was it that was you know now my father wasn't real pleased with (laughs) i'm watching the tv going that's what I'm going to do. That's what I'm going to do. And my father's going, Oh no, you're not. Oh no, you're not. <laughs> so we, uh, we had a little disagreement there, but, um, eventually, uh, he was cool about it all. But, um, yeah, I, it, it's a common thread, Logan. Everybody I know my age or around my age has said the same thing that they changed. They didn't only change music. They changed the world. And, um, uh, and it was just what an amazing time to grow have grown up. Um, I think young people have they don't have any idea what it was like to have that big of a star in rock and roll music. Uh, uh, I mean, there's big stars now, but nobody's ever been as big, or I don't think ever will be as big as the Beatles. Without a doubt. You know, my, Michael Jackson, Michael Jackson, I, I, he could stand up right there with him. He was a huge star. But that, but see, the Beatles started something. They were the originals. And, and um, uh, it's never been the same since then. I don't believe there's ever been an artist that, that have done what they've done. There's been artists that have been incredibly successful, but they didn't change the world. That's for sure. I agree. Let me ask you this, Joe. Um, what was the music uh, that you were listening to growing up? Was it all sort of like polka and jazz based, or were you kind of digging uh, into roots music, Annie? Uh, actually, um, I didn't really listen to polkas. I, I wasn't that fond of them as far as to have a, a record collection of them or anything like that. But I listened to a lot of, remember, this was like early 50s. I listened to a lot of uh, rock and roll on the radio on am radio i listened to uh, all my dad's jazz records and i'm glad i did i learned a lot from listening to those records and i had a, a really good education in music because i didn't just learn one thing i learned a lot of different styles i learned how to read so i i took band and orchestra in school and um uh but when before rock and before 1964 i was listening to a lot of jazz and, uh, and, 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 and rock and roll on AM radio, you know, like everybody else my age, you know, and, um, I was listening and learning and, um, um, I'd hear a record or something on the radio and, and I'd, I'd have to start trying to play that drum part. And it was a good, it was a good time. 
Oh, I would, I would certainly bet. So what were some of these first gigs like in, in uh, central Ohio? Well, you, you, you threw all your gear into your dad's station wagon and you drove over to the hall and you loaded it all in, you set it all up and you played three hours for a bunch of drunk people at a wedding. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and then we got free, you know, we got free ham sandwiches and beer, although we weren't allowed to drink the beer my dad did, but, and, uh, and then you packed up, you went home and you put like 15 bucks in your pocket. It, it, it didn't pay well. <laughs> and, and were, was this like a full-time deal? You're playing all seven nights a week and, and all of that? Oh no, 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 no. My father was a barber, so he played on the weekends and uh, his third job was he taught music at a music store in town. And so um, this was basically Friday, Saturday, uh, and most weddings are, you know, Saturday. And, and, and we played dances and different things. And um, so it was every weekend we played. But, um, uh, it, you know, it, it, it was every weekend. We were pretty busy. Now, you ended up being a part of a couple of, of groups at this point, too, sort of rock bands. Yep. Yeah. Um, there was a, uh, my father's polka band played at this homecoming in this little rural city way out in the, in the middle of nowhere. And there was also a rock and roll band going to play that day called the echoes. And they, their drummer was sick that day for some reason. I think it was, uh, a gift from God to me <laughs> anyway, but, um, uh, uh, so they said, Hey, you, you want to leave your drum set up and, and play with us? And I was thrilled because I knew of these guys, they were a good rock and roll band and they played, remember this is early sixties. So they, they were playing stuff like Wipeout, which is great for drums. And they were playing like some, um, uh, you know, uh, you know, little Richard, they were playing, you know, Chuck Berry, old, old style rock and roll. And I knew all the songs and, um, so I played with them and it was, I'll never forget that day. And, um, uh, about two months later they called and said, listen, the, our drummer's going off to college. You want to join our band? I was just thrilled. Only problem is now I had to quit my dad's band. Oh. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. And if you're Italian, you don't quit your dad's polka band, <laughs> but, uh, so it was, it was pretty, it was, it was like high noon at my house for a while, you know, but, um, uh, you know, I, I had to do it. I had to go for it. I, there was nothing was going to stop me. Uh, I mean, uh, to, to a point of course, but, but I, I had to do this and, um, it was playing music that I really loved. And also those guys played for people and kids my age, you know, instead of playing for a bunch of old drunks at a wedding. <laughs> so, um, it was really fun and we played high school dances and, um, sock hops and different things at the high schools and all that. It was a ball. I, 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 I miss those days because it was so innocent and so fun. We didn't make any, we made like 10, 15 bucks a night. But back then that wasn't bad, you know, and, um, but it was a, such a good time. And, and you guys did a, uh, a LP with the, uh, the echoes, right? We, uh, we actually, when we were in high school, uh, we were signed uh, by then we were called the child. Okay. Uh, and uh, we were signed to Warner Brothers uh, with a record deal, and we were still in high school. As a matter of fact, I just recently got a copy of that contract, and I forgot that our fathers and mothers had to sign for us because we weren't legal age to sign a contract. 
And uh, all our parents' signature were on the contract. Uh, pretty interesting. I forgot about that. I would never thought about it. But um, uh, we were that young. And uh, so they signed us to um, a record deal. And we were still in high school. And, and we did pretty good. We we made the billboard charts. And um, um, and, and we had a good run. We, had, we lasted for about three or four years. And then the, the guys um, got married, had kids, and did other things. I... I wasn't about to go that way at that point. I, I still was, you know, raring to go with rock and roll. So um, I moved on and, um, and they, you know, we're, we're, you know, we still talk once in a while that two of them have died, but, um, but I still talk with them and um, um, they've always been supportive. They just wanted to do something different in life. And, and, and so did I. So uh, I stayed in music and they didn't. But we had a good run. What did Ted Nugent do for you when he was in a bar that you were playing at? Uh, boy, you've done your homework. <laughs> um, I was playing at a bar in Kent, Kent State, Ohio. That's where Joe Walsh was as well. And uh, th- th- I moved to Kent from my hometown because there was a lot of music up there. It was a great place for a musician because there were gigs there was, you know, we could play five, six nights a week. You could actually make a living up there. So I went up there and playing clubs. Joe Walsh was playing clubs, too. He was playing opposite of me in many nights. And um, um, one night, this club I'm playing at, and apparently Ted Nugent came in because Ted Nugent lived in near Detroit, Ann Arbor area. And he found out that he heard that this city, Kent, Ohio, had quite a music scene. It really did. It was pretty amazing, the music scene there. And he heard about it, and it was about a three-hour drive. So he drove down and was, you know, going club to club, just listening to musicians. And he came into the club I was playing, and he really liked what he heard from me. I didn't even know he was there. Uh, I mean, he's kind of hard to miss. <laughs> but uh, uh, I didn't know he was there. And um, uh Apparently, you know, he really liked it. And a few days later, I got a call from him and um, I went up to Detroit and joined his band. And how many years were you a part of the Ted Nugent band? Only only six months. That was it? <laughs> because that was it because uh, my, you know, me and Joe Walsh were friends, you know, long since 68. We've been friends for 52 years. And so we had always talked about doing something. But, you know, he was flying high with the James gang. They were doing really well. All of a sudden he wants to leave the James gang. But, but when I was with Nugent, one of the shows we did down in Florida is we opened for the James gang. And I didn't think much of us would be like, Oh, this is cool. I get to see my friend Joe and we get to hang out a little bit. And, and after the gig, Joe came up to me and he says, come by my hotel room. I want to talk to you. So, uh, we, we had this talk and, and he said, listen, I'm, I'm leaving the James gang. I want to do something different. I want you to be my drummer. I was thrilled because we had talked about doing this for a long time. But I, I you know, I love the James guy. I, I was never going to try to interfere with that. But all of a sudden, he's leaving. He wants to put something together. So I said, fantastic. Ted Nugent was just wonderful about it. He says, oh, that's so great. You guys should be in a band together. He was really nice about it, you know. And um, so uh, that was the fall of 71. And that was like November one and by january 72 a couple months later i had moved out to colorado to start working with joe walsh 
Now, what's interesting about Colorado, and, and most people don't realize this either, it was another music hotspot for whatever reason. You know, th- that is so true. Um, I I didn't know that because, you know, I'm here, I was here in Ohio and, and up in Kent and, you know, you don't hear about that sort of stuff. And, uh, but when we got out there, uh, honest to God, it was like, man, what a, you're right. It's such a hot spot. There was like, you know, Stephen Stills, uh, you know, uh, some of the Beach Boys, Dan Fogelberg, Firefall, uh, now Joe Walsh. I mean, there was all kinds of um, artists moving there. And what happened was it's because of the they built Caribou Ranch Studio. And it was probably one of the nicest studios in the world at the time. And everybody was migrating to 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 a, De- a Denver Boulder area and going up and recording in at Caribou. Uh, rock and roll's kind of like that, you know. It migrates, you know. For a while in the '70s, Criteria down in Florida, Miami, Florida, that was the big hot spot. And then, you know, of course, LA has always been hot in New York, but all of a sudden, uh, and now now it's Nashville. But I mean, back then, Caribou Ranch was, you know, just a beautiful studio in the middle of the mountains classy classy place and uh, you didn't really have to leave because they had you could stay there they had these bungalows and they had a whole kitchen and they had you know so you you could go up there for three months and never leave and um so um that was really really um uh, a, a magnet to a lot of a lot of bands, a lot of artists. And I mean, John Lennon, Elton John, everybody was there. Chicago, the Beach Boys, Danny Fogelberg. Uh, we re- we recorded with Rick Derringer up there. There was so many artists that went through there. Um, they they had quite a run there. Absolutely, and several of them have uh, have still stayed up there. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean. Um, um, uh, unfortunately, Dan Fogelberg passed, but he was—he'd never leave Colorado. He loved Colorado. He had a big ranch in Colorado, and a lot of people uh, have never left up there. And um, I mean, I suppose you know some of them did because eventually, you know, you kind of had to be living in LA in this industry or what have you. But I mean, for a long time, there was—they—they they didn't want to move. They wanted to stay there, and I. I I love Colorado. It was just a, a little, little much for me because I don't ski. I don't even like winter. <laughs> so, um, it, it, you know, but still, it's a beautiful, beautiful place. Right. I mean, you kind of went from one cold place to another cold place. Yeah. Yeah, with, with less oxygen. Right. Yeah, because of the uh, the elevation difference. Yeah. You made the uh, the Barnstorm album in 1972 with Joe Walsh. What was it like being in the studio and rec- and uh, recording with him? Well, we had messed around before that, but this was the first time we were really, you know, in a professional studio. And actually, I don't know if you know, but a lot of people don't realize or don't know that the Barnstorm album we did with Joe Walsh it was the very first album ever recorded at Caribou. And um, they weren't even quite done finishing the building. The studio was done, but there, some of the building was still in construction. And um, uh, it was an, uh, an incredible experience because uh, myself and Joe Walsh and our bass player, that was up, we, uh, Caribou, they gave us the run of the place. Here's the keys, 
go in and record and go and work. And we were on our own and it was just such a remote area. It's really good for the creative juices, you know. I mean, there's no distractions up there. Uh, and, you know, this was way before cell phones and Internet. So there was no nobody was on their phone over there in the side of the control room, you know. And uh, uh, it was uh, uh, no distractions and just your you kept your head, you know, in the game and, and so creative. And um, that's one of Joe's really one of his best records and we didn't have really any hit singles until the next album which this you know uh rocky mountain way but but the first album had was very magical and really a creative piece it was really fun but yeah it was great we had talked about recording for several years uh when we were not working together we would get together once in a while and we'd talk about it and and we finally got a chance to do it and and uh, and uh, we went on to record quite a few um, cool little things absolutely and then after that you mentioned the uh the rick derringer deal and that was done up there as well rick derringer there was um dan fogelberg was recording at the time there was so many artists that were uh, see once that caught on and remember logan back in the 70s early 70s groups were actually getting real record deals where the record company were paying for everything you know and so uh, the budget was, you know, pretty large budgets and because uh, it wasn't it wasn't cheap. It was pretty expensive to record up there. But we had really nice deals with the record company. And, hey, they made their money back tenfold. But I mean, uh, you know, there were record deals. And, you know, now uh, everybody's kind of on their own. And of course, there are some record deals, there, but it's nothing like in the 70s. Uh, boy, they record companies spent a lot of money on those records, but also we all made a lot of great records with that money they gave us. You know? I agree with that, 100%. Yeah. You did a couple of albums with Michael Stanley, and, of course, he would later go on to uh, to have the hit He Can't Love You. Right. Um, what was it like doing stuff with him? Well, it was really cool because he was a Cleveland guy. You know, he was a – we knew Michael, uh, and um, – uh, it's, it's really nice when you, after a while, you haven't seen each other and bring old friends together to make a record. And that first record we did had quite a few celebrity names on it. And, um, uh, all our, all those early days, all the music we recorded, well, at least a lot of the music that I recorded was all centered around Bill Simzik, the producer, because he would, um, get all these projects. He was an incredible producer, very successful. And he'd get all these uh, production gigs and he'd always bring in his, he called him us. He called us his A team. So fortunately he, he, you know, we got to do a lot of records with him and, um, uh, he kept us busy for quite a while. And, uh, I mean, he, he stayed at it. He eventually moved to, he, he lived in Colorado as well. He eventually moved down to Miami and, you know, where they brought in all the Eagles records there and, that sort of stuff, but uh, he w- he made a lot of records up at Caribou, and and some of that Michael Stanley stuff was was just some of it. Yes, uh, Michael Stanley uh, actually, uh, Bill Simzik discovered Michael Stanley and got him his first record deal. Oh wow! So yeah, and and Bill Simzik to this very day still works with Michael Stanley every once in a while. Michael every other year Michael makes a record and. Um, 
uh, Bill comes up and um, uh, uh, works with him on it and mixes it and all that. And he still works with him. He's an old friend. Michael is an old family. He's a good, good, good guy and uh, been around for years. I've known him for almost 50 years. So, um, but uh, yeah, uh, Bill Simsic discovered him and uh, brought him to his first record deal. And so when we made the first record, Bill brought us all of us guys in to make the record for Michael. Well, how cool is that? Yeah, it was really cool. You did uh, the smoker you drink, the player you get. Yeah, don't ask me what the title means. I don't know. <laughs> you have a song on there, Rocky Mountain Way, which you're one of the writers of. Talk about That's your involvement correct. with that song. Well, um, Walsh was a big fan of Dwayne Allman. And when Dwayne died, I think he died around 71, 72, somewhere in there. I'm not sure about that. But uh, when he died, uh, uh, it was uh, at that time, Joe um, was not playing slide guitar. So he decided in honor of Dwayne, he'd pick up the slide guitar. Uh, you don't just pick it up. It's a hard hard thing to play and, and and but joe's a great guitar player. he he got real good real fast with slide and i mean now he's one of the world's best but uh when he when we made the smoker album we had one more song we wanted to do and um bill simsick suggested he said why don't you guys uh write something that shows off joe walsh's new talent on slide guitar and we said oh okay so i mean a slow blues in E is, I think, the best way to show off slide guitar. So uh, I, I wrote the music, and um, uh, Joe wrote the words, and um, we did that song. I believe that what you hear on the radio to this day, that that particular cut of it was only, uh, it was take one. We, 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 it was the first take, and it went so well that we, when we were done with it, we, set, we just thought, Okay, that's done. It, it, it was so smooth and came out so well that, you know, and sometimes they do. Sometimes they take a day to record or, or one time too. It's always different. But that particular cut, we did it in one take. And uh, it was just, when we walked in and listened to it, we knew that was the take. That was the master take. And, um, and then Joe added, you know, his slide and his talk box. And, and I did keys and stuff. And, um, but, uh, and, and what's funny, what's really funny, ironic about that was it was just a song that, you know, we kind of added to we needed 10 songs or whatever we needed, 10 or 11. And we needed one more song. So that's the what that's the song we, we did. And what's so funny about that is <laughs> it turned into his flagship song. It's like his biggest hit. And uh, so, you know, it's it's very difficult to to make sense out of rock and roll sometimes, but stuff like that happens. And, um, uh, you know, you never know. You, you always give it your best because you never know what's going to happen with what you're doing, you know? Absolutely. You eventually were hired by Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and that was Stephen Stills who kind of put that band together. Talk about meeting Stephen Stills. Well, uh, we, let's go back to Caribou. Stephen lived in Colorado, and uh, he was Stephen was a big fan of Joe Walsh's and vice versa, uh, and, and Joe really loved Stephen Stills. Anyway, uh, we were recording up at Caribou Ranch one night, and uh, Stephen Stills shows up, 
and I had never met Stephen. I was thrilled because I love Stephen. So I love the Buffalo Springfield. And, and so uh, he showed up and uh, and we got to meet and all that. And he was listening to us play and all that. And then I hadn't heard from him or talked to him in, in maybe a couple of years went by. And all of a sudden, uh, he, I hear he's trying to get a hold of me. And uh, he said, hey, I, I really like the way you play with Joe. And um, uh, you want to uh, do a, a record with me? We did a solo record for Stephen Stills. And <clears throat> and that really went well. And um, so for the, we were, we did one record with Steven and then all of a sudden Steven calls me one day about six months later and he says, Hey, we're going to all meet in Miami. We're going to do another record. I said, Oh, fantastic. What he didn't tell me was it with, it was with Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. And, uh, and that's how I kind of got into that. Uh, Steven brought me into that and, um, and it ended up being a 35 years with CSN. <laughs> so I guess you did something right. I must have done something right, uh, uh, thankfully. And, um, uh, you know, and, and Stephen and me, we, we still talk. We, we get along well. And, and um, but that was quite a long run. Now, you know, they didn't always work. That's why I had other gigs in between those, in, in, during those 35 years. But I had my run with CSN was 35 years long. And, and once in a while, Neil would come into the uh, project i did two crosby shows national young albums but that first album we did down in florida was supposed to be csny but crosby nash just did a duet album they kind of used all their songs up for that so they kind of didn't have songs for that that's why it became because neil said hey well let's still record that's why it became the stills young project uh we had a hit with that called long may you run right that was a good album the steel's young album that i listened to it once in a while i just listened to some of it the other day it's really a good record and uh, it was supposed to be csny there's no weirdness it's just that crosby nash were just finished a duet album and they were going on the road to promote it so it was just out of the question to have a, to, at that time to do a csny project so we did a cross i mean a steel's young record yeah and that was uh 76 right that's correct. Uh, one of one of my favorite songs on there. It's the second song on there that and it's kind of got that jazzy sort of groove uh, called "Make Love to You." Oh yeah, yeah. And Stephen would do that in his solo band up till even a few years ago. He was still doing that song because it it's a cool song and um, people like it, so he does it. And uh, there's there's some great little drum fills and stuff like that on that song as well. That, you know, that musically, uh, they let us all, the band was killer, I thought, and they just let us do what we wanted. And um, uh, a lot of times, you know, the, the artists, the star, or whatever you want to call them, they tell you what they want, and it's got to be like that, and that's fine with me. But for some reason, these guys, they said, hey, man, you guys are the band, do whatever you want. So, and, and you, know, I, you know, I felt we were all really good, you know, experienced players. So we went for it. And um, there's a lot of good playing on that record. It's really, it's really a cool record. Absolutely. Now, talk about the, the tour for that album. Well, that's a whole other story because <laughs> we went to Neil's, uh, Neil Young's ranch to rehearse. Uh, we rehearsed for three weeks. And the band was just smoking. It was great. We rehearsed for three weeks and the tour lasted two weeks. <laughs> so, um, 
nothing weird. You know, uh, Neil, uh, once in a while, Neil, he, he gets into stuff and then he forgets that he's got all these other things that he's got booked and, um, uh, and he just couldn't do it. And, and it was going to be all summer and he had, uh, obligations with crazy horse and, you know, he, he really wanted to do it, but all of a sudden he realized, man, I can't do this. So we, we went out and played gigs for two weeks. They were great. We sold out every show in a half hour. Wow. And, um, yeah, it was really great because nobody had ever seen Stephen and Neil, just the two. Uh, and it was kind of like a little bit like a hint of Buffalo Springfield, you know. So uh, they sold a lot of tickets quickly. and um, But it only lasted two weeks. And uh, Neil went back home and started his obligations with all the stuff he had booked with Crazy Horse. And then we uh, went home and, and waited till Crosby Nash were done and got back together and did Crosby, Stills, and Nash in 77. And that was a that was a really nice record, too. And that, of course, had to hit uh, just a song before I go on there. That's correct. And, and Dark Star. And there was a lot of good songs on that record. Yeah, just a song before I go was probably the single. Yeah. Joe, you mentioned Dark Star. That's a that's a really groovy song. It's killer, and, and it's so fun to play live. And um, uh, it, it, it wasn't like, as they say, a hit single, but I'll tell you what, it was a hit when we played live. Everybody knew that song, and they sang all the words, and they, they loved hearing that song live, and we loved playing it. Now, was it Stephen that kind of said, hey, we're going to do this, we're going to do this Latin thing on this record? Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's very uh, Latin-influenced. He... Um, He's got a, I mean, even like love the one with all the stuff that this solo with Steven, he's always got this, this great Latin pocket about what he writes and the way he plays. It's not like Latin music per se, but it's, it's got that influence on everything he does. And, and, and for a drummer myself, I, I love that. Cause it's, I love that, those pockets and that, that feel with anything Latin like that. No kidding. So that album, of course, had a pretty major tour schedule that went along with it. Slowly but surely, that led to your eventual involvement with the Eagles. But before that, Joe Walsh uh, went to join the group, and you were running around with Peter Frampton. Yeah, um, they, uh, they changed drummers uh, mid tour on the Peter Frampton comes alive tour. And uh, I, I got the call to do it and I got the call to fill in for like three shows, but it apparently worked out to where Peter said, Hey, you want to just do the tour? And I said, absolutely, man. Peter was a huge star. Still is. a. I mean, he's obviously a huge star, but I didn't realize I knew he was a big star, but until you get on a stage and you look out at a stadium and it's packed full, uh, you don't realize how big a star he is. Uh, all of a sudden, it was like, man, this guy's gigantic. We we played the entire world with that tour. And uh, then that ended. And um, uh, about that, that time is when uh, I got the call about the Eagles. Right. And that would be, what year would that be? That would be late, se- uh, uh, mid-79 to late-79. Uh, they were going to Japan on a, a, a new tour of uh, supporting the album, The Long Run. So it was The Long Run Tour. And um, 
uh, with so much of Joe's music in the tour, uh, they wanted me to play drums on it because uh, I made the records with him. And then also I was able to give Don Henley a break so he could go out front and sing. And he still does that to this day. He, uh, he'll he go up to the front and sing and, and give somebody else the drums. Yeah, yeah, and uh, it's really nice because he should. He, she's a great singer, obviously a great singer, and uh, he plays guitar. He goes up front, and, and uh, you know, I personally, being a drummer, I'm a little nervous being up front. <laughs> I like to be back there behind all that stuff. But, um, uh, yeah, they still do that, and um, uh, that, that tour, the long one tour, was two years long. And um, uh, there was a time in my life. It was a really great, amazing experience with those guys because they're so they're so good. Every night, it just the precision was amazing. They were so good. They're still every night. They're they're great still. You know. Absolutely. When when you were with the Eagles, talk about um, the song in the city. Well, um, we we cut in the city. Uh, me and Joe cut in the city uh, uh, before the Eagles did. Uh, we did it for the movie The Warriors. Uh, it was just a, a piece in the movie, and uh, it you know it got some recognition and all that. Well, apparently uh, it was either Glenn Fry or Don Henley, one of them, really liked the song, and they recorded again, and so they did a really nice version. And so, um, I mean, that's to this day, it's a, a big song live for Joe. And uh, but originally we cut it for the movie, The Warriors. I think it's in the end of Warriors or something. Oh, OK. And uh, I mean, it was a it's a New York gang kind of movie. And um, um, uh, it, it, you know, it was just a part of the soundtrack and all that. But it became a pretty good hit. And um People really like that song, and uh, I love playing. It's a lot of fun to play, and Joe still does it to this very day. It is a great song. I definitely agree with that, too. Yep. In the Eagles documentary, um, they talk about Joe Walsh um, and hotel rooms. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they do, don't they? They absolutely do. What was yeah. what was your first experience like with uh, Joe Walsh um, voiding the warranty on a hotel room? Well, I I thought he had lost his mind and the tour was over. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, then I come to realize, I come to find out that no, he just does that once in a while, and I was like, oh, okay, well, <laughs> as long as he's paying for it, you know, and um, yeah, he. Uh, he, he, for some reason, that he he went through that period of time. I don't know. He obviously doesn't do that anymore. But um, yeah, that was the first time that happened. I was like, I think he's our our leader has our fearless leader has lost his mind. But <laughs> then I found out no, he's just having fun and he'll pay for it. So okay, whatever. It's only rock and roll. You know? Absolutely. Um. So this this wasn't the thing he would do like every single night, was it? No, 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 no. And the one room he did up pretty good in Chicago, they banned him from that hotel. Oh, really? But not only that, not only that. A lot of people don't know this. They put in the the um, the deed to that property that no matter what building is put up there, that he's not allowed in it. Wow. <laughs> so if they tear it out, it was a Holiday Inn or something. If they tear down the Holiday Inn, 
and put up an AT and T building or something. He's not allowed in that building either. <laughs> so, Dang. Yeah, they were they were pissed. <laughs> so did did you ever get to meet John Belushi, who who definitely had some involvement with that incident? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. John and Dan Aykroyd, uh, wonderful, wonderful guys. They they um, they were doing the Blues Brothers. And, uh, they, um, uh, we're going to tour and they had never toured. So what they did was they contacted Irvay's off Eagles management and said, listen, can we kind of hang around the Eagles for a couple weeks and see how it is on the road? They'd never toured like a rock and roll tour. And they wanted to see what it was like, how, you know, just all the protocol in touring. So, and we found out and we're like, Hell yeah. <laughs> the, the Blues Brothers want to come out on the tour with us. They were so much fun. Uh, I mean, it was never a dull moment. And I mean, they were just hilarious. And, and what was funny was when we'd pull into a city, uh, all the autograph people would come to the hotel and they were looking for the Blues Brothers, not the Eagles. Really? <laughs> oh, yeah. They were like, oh, man, the Blues Brothers are here. Uh, you know, they had seen Eagles before, but they had never seen the Blues Brothers. And so they came out and, and they were taking, they were really smart about it. They were taking notes and they were going, oh, okay, I see. I see how to run a sound check and I see why it's important to have a sound check and blah, blah, blah. And, and, and you know, when to walk off the stage, when to come back for an encore. They had to learn all this stuff because, you know, it's on the job training. You don't just, there's no book that you can learn this stuff in. You got to learn it as you go. And they kind of got a real bird's eye view of what it was like to be on the road. And, um, I w I was kind of shocked that they didn't, I mean, these guys are like big celebrities on film and camera and stage and all that, but it's different with a rock and roll tour. It's totally different. And so they, um, they came out. We were sad to see him go. We had such a good time with them. They were out with us for about two weeks. Wow. So was it just the two of them or was it the whole band? No, nah, just the two. Oh, of them. okay. You were a part of the eventual uh, Eagles Live album. Right, right. Talk about that. Well, that was really a, uh, it, it was like um, a sweet and sour weekend because uh, we, we recorded the album for a couple, a couple of shows went really well, but then they kind of had this big, huge disagreement and they broke up. <laughs> so, uh, it, it was the last thing that we did was, uh, the two days of recording two or three days of recording that record. And then, uh, that was the end all from 1980 all the way to 1994. Yeah. But, the, but the making of the album was, you know, it was really great. I mean, it came out really well and it, it's still doing well to this day. Of course, it has us on Seven Bridges Road on it. Oh, man, one of my favorites. That's what they used for a warm-up, their vocal warm-up before each show. I see. You you did a drum fill that was not approved of on that tour. <laughs> oh, boy, you really did your homework. Um, well, uh, the Eagles... Uh, and I, I really respect them for this. They really, really insist on playing the record live. And I mean, you play the parts like you did on the record because people, people pay a lot of money for tickets. They want to hear those songs and they want to hear all the little things about those songs that they love. So our 
commanders and chiefs <laughs> told us that, you know, listen, stick to the arrangement, no fancy stuff, blah, 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 you know, whatever. We knew we got, we got it. And, and so, and that's what we did every night. Well, one night, Joe, Joe and Felder were playing the talk box solos in the, the song, those shoes. And they were, they were getting a little out of, uh, of, of the arrangement. They were going for it. They were rocking too. It was just killer. I mean, they weren't playing the same solos that they played every night. And, and, and so I'm, th I'm thinking, wow, this is cool. So coming out of that dual talk box solo, which is, was really amazing. I played a fancy fill that is not on the record. And, uh, and a couple of the guys turned around and gave me a nod like that was cool and blah, blah, blah. I didn't think anything of it. It's just, a, you know, a show and we were jamming. And so after the show that night, later that night, I get a call in my hotel room. It's Don Henley. And he said, hey, he called me Joe Bob because he's from, it was a Texas thing. He said, hey, Joe Bob, come out to my room for a minute. So I said, okay. So I go up to his room. I knock on his door and he opens the door, the chain still on the door. And he talks to me through the crack. He had his Ritz Carlton robe on. And he said, hey, Joe Bob, listen, you know that drum fill coming out of the dual talk box solo? I thought, oh, he's going to give me a compliment. How sweet. And he, he looked at me, these eyes, and he said, don't do that. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, don't. I said, and then he goes, have a nice night and shut the door. And so it's like, whoa okay i guess i better never do that again the problem is that that wasn't the end of it the next day the next city we're at sound check right and glenn fry comes up to me and he goes hey joe bob he said you know that drum fill last night and i went all right let me hear it he goes no no no." he says he peels off a hundred dollars hundred dollar bill he said play it again tonight <laughs> i said no way i said there's not enough zeros on that bill to play that thing again <laughs> Wow, that's good. Yeah, but that you know what—that's the way you know that it, it was no big deal. Those guys and me and Henley laughed about it. it was—it's nothing. Um, we got along really well, and, and we had just had a, the time of our lives. And that's a, such a great band. I really love them and respect them. And for them to still be doing what they're doing and the business they're doing and and the, and the quality of their stage show. Uh, and, and, and God rest his soul, Glenn Fry. He was, he was so good. And, uh, they're, you know, they're out with, you know, his son and, and, and um, Vince Gill and they're doing quite well. I mean, they're doing really well. And, uh, so more power to them. That's such a great band. With great songs and great albums. Oh man. The songs are just endless. The, the hits are just amazing. I agree. You, um, you did an album with Boz Skaggs uh, called Middleman. Well, yeah, one cut. One cut. I played on one cut on that, and uh, uh, I believe Steve Lukather was on that. And uh, he said that they wanted kind of a, a double bass drum kind of feel on this one cut. And he, and he said, I know a guy that can do that. So he called me. Down. That was really a cool experience because it was like I was in another studio recording and we moved all the gear over there. We did one song and moved it all back. So, but um, uh, Boz, uh, <clears throat> Boz was in the same management firm, managed by the by the same guys that you know managed Joe and the Eagles and Danny Fogelberg and all them guys. And and so you know, kind of a one big family. Right. 
Uh, before we get too far carried uh, carried away ahead, I want to bounce back to uh, Joe Walsh's album, but seriously, folks. Right. Um, Life's Been Good is on there. Yeah. Is that a fair description of, uh, of Joe Walsh at that point in time? Yeah, I mean, he's he had when he was really young he had a great run with the James Gang and they had you know Funk 49 and, and uh Walk Away and some other hits and um you know and then uh, uh we had a big hit with uh, Rocky Mountain Wave and um he was doing quite well as a solo artist and um uh and then you know hooking up with the Eagles are you kidding and um and then we're in the studio with um uh, for his uh, a solo record, uh, and uh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And and he talks about his life in the song. He talks about all kinds of stuff. And it's it it it's a, a another big flagship song of his career, you know. And um, uh, that's a great album. That whole album, I really like that album a lot. And um, uh, I like every song on that album. And we had a great time doing it. It was down in Florida, in Miami, at Bill Simzik's studio. And um, a lot of good memories uh, with that record. I was going to ask you if that was one of those ones he did on the boat, but obviously that one was not. Yeah, well, it was. Oh, okay. Um, we didn't do the album on the boat. We did a couple of cuts on the boat. And uh, Joe always liked this remote kind of recording. That's what I think was so attractive to him about Caribou. Uh, he loves remote recording because he hates distractions. And I don't blame him. I hate him, too. When you're making a record, you got to keep your head in that. You can't have all these distractions. And so he really likes a remote scenario to record. And so uh, we're down in Miami. There's the waters right there. There's all kinds of boats and big yachts. We said, why, you know, Joe said, why can't we rent for a few days a yacht and put a little portable studio and some recording gear on and some instruments and let's go record some music out there. Again, we thought, what are you nuts? So, but it was an amazing experience and it worked. And um, we're out in the middle of nowhere um, and we anchor down, run, start up the generators. And we're playing in this big, huge yacht in the living room of the yacht. And there's a recording studio behind the window. And um, we're making records. <laughs> and what was the most fun was, I mean, that was really fun because it was so different. But what was really fun was when we got back to land and we the next week and we got into the, back into the real studio on land. And we brought those tapes in and we started playing with like, man this is good it sounded good we, we had no idea we weren't really i don't know that we were taking it that seriously because if you looked at where we were and what we were doing it was like this is crazy but when we got back to the studio it sounded amazing so uh it worked out really good and um that uh, uh, one of my favorite experiences and memories of, of my whole career was that and being on a boat obviously um did you fit a 24 track recorder in there we didn't what we did was we brought uh drums bass uh uh, uh guitar amps and keyboards and then bill simsy put together a four track 
uh, a reel-to-reel four track because all we were interested in doing is cutting um, the basic track. And so, and then we'd bring that into the studio and offload that onto 24 and then finish the, 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 the overdubs and stuff. So we only had a, tw- a four track recorder. That makes sense. And it's a little more uh, portable too. Certainly is. And he had a little board, some microphones and some cables and man, it was amazing. Uh, it was just, it was just unique. And I had never done anything like that. I haven't done anything like that since. You know, and um, um, again, uh, when I look at the photos and stuff from that, uh, it's just I, I can't believe we actually did that. Uh, when we do- we docked up at Plantation Harbor, uh, that's in the Keys of Florida, in the Keys, and um, we had a nickname because what of what we were and what we were doing. All those boating fishermen kind of you know lifers down there, they called us the boat weirdos. <laughs> <laughs> so we you know we uh that's why the song on but seriously folks is called theme from boat weirdos so that's the story behind the song that's it they they looked at us and they go what a bunch of weirdos and so we enjoyed that and uh we took it and wrote a song around it so nice yeah dan fogelberg that's one you you've mentioned uh, previously a few times and you've done a couple of albums with him as well yeah recorded um uh with him and toured uh several tours with him and um uh what a sweet guy just a wonderful amazing artist amazing singer and um big big old generous heart and he's just so kind and um uh it was just a pleasure working with him and he he was a, a a Colorado guy. I mean, he was not born in Colorado, but boy, he he grew some some deep roots in Colorado. He loved it there. He had a big old ranch and um, uh, horses and stuff. And um, yeah, he he was um, uh, a wonderful person. And it's so sad that he's gone. Um, he was one of the good ones, you know. Right. So, Joe, how many albums did you eventually do with Dan? I think about five, but I didn't play on the, you know, with Dan, he used different musicians and actually his, his primary drummer was, uh, I believe was Russ Kunkel. Uh, but he, 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 he did, depending on the type of song, he'd bring in different people to do different things. And then when I did uh, tours with him, sometimes I toured with him and played drums. <clears throat> and when Russ Kunkel was playing on tours, I would go out and tour with him and play uh, keyboards and flute because he he um he did an album um a duet album and i'm I'm sorry i can't remember the guy's name maybe you'd remember but uh, it was guitar and flute and so we did some cuts uh with that with flute and so and he knew i played flute and um so i played keys and flute and percussion on a couple of tours and when dan uh, when when uh, russ kunkel played drums so i got to work with um Dan on tour uh, in a couple of different ways, and it was really exciting. Yeah, Tim Weisberg. Tim Weisberg, that's it, that's it, the flute player. And uh, so we did a couple of cuts from that record, and that Dan never did because he never had a flute player. And so, uh, man, that was fun. And um, so we did those, a couple of cuts from that, and um, 
And then I would play percussion and I'd do a little bit of keyboard. And uh, kind of what I did with the Eagles, I'm kind of a utility guy, you know, bounce around and, and do what's needed, you know? Right. You'd, uh, you'd, you'd do whatever it takes to get your uh, next check. That's job security. <laughs> exactly. Now, um, were you on those songs that uh, were brand new for the Greatest Hits album? Um, greatest Hits record. I think, um, let me remember. <clears throat> Uh, yes, I was on Missing You. That's what I thought. Uh, I was on Missing You, and I can't remember on that record. Was The Language of Love on that record? It sounds right. I don't have it sitting in front yeah. of me. I, yeah, I don't either. Uh, I, I, I played on Missing You, and I played on The Language of Love. As far as I think that would have made his greatest hits record, because both of those were kind of hits. And um, um so yes, uh, and, and I played on you know other like I said uh, other records of his, but just like a cut here and there, you know he had different guys on. Uh, I don't know. I don't even know if he ever made a record with the same guys. Oh really? You know, with on on the whole record, I don't know that. I mean, I may be wrong, but it, I I remember getting a call and Dan wanted me to do a couple of cuts with him, but then there was you know other guys who were doing other cuts and. That's the way he he did it, and it, it actually made for a really nice sounding record. But um, so on the greatest hits record, yeah, it's probably missing you and the language of love. Were you the drummer on uh, part of the plan? Uh, no, I was okay. not. Okay, I couldn't. I could not remember. In 1982, Crosby, Stills and Nash got together again to do the Daylight Again album with uh, with a whole new set of musicians, including Michael Sturgis and one of the best singers that nobody's ever heard of, Michael Finnegan. Oh, my God, Michael Finnegan, jeez, so good. And uh, a great B3 player as well. <laughs> oh, my God, he's he's one of the, I think he might be one of the best B, B3 players in the world right now. Yeah, he is. He's just that good. Yeah, he's amazing. So daylight again. Um, you're you're in the studio. Um, talk about David Crosby at this point because he's just about at rock bottom throughout the recording of that whole album. Yeah, that was pretty rough. Uh, speaking of Mike Finnegan, Mike Finnegan was singing a lot of the parts that Crosby would have sang, and it, it was just it was a dark time. D David was in a lot of trouble. It's all documented. Everybody knows. And he was just in a lot of trouble and uh, fighting all his demons, you know, and, and uh, just, man, we struggling to get this record done. And uh, it was going so well. He would come in one day and stay for about an hour and leave. And then we wouldn't see him for three days. And, you know, it, it was getting to the point where at one point, Graham Nash said, hey, Stills, might as well make a Stills Nash record. <laughs> I'm like, oh, no. We're doing this again, like Stills. Yeah, now it's going to be Stills Nash. Uh, it was sad. It was we all were were just heartbroken because, you know, it's David. You know, and it's like, but man, was he in trouble? And uh, he almost died. You know, and um, uh, so and, and and then once we finally got the record done, then we had to deal with him on tour, and that was a whole another nightmare. And and it just was, you know, when he. When he got arrested, honest to God, getting thrown in prison saved his life. He was going to die. 
And, uh, and there's no way he'd have made it out of that mess he was in. And God bless him. He got out and, and he, he's been clean and sober for many, many years, now, decades. And, um, uh, and, and he had a liver transplant. He had a couple of heart attacks. He had all kinds of issues, but he's still around. He's strong. He's singing amazingly. And, um, but those, that was a rough record to make. And it's, you know, it's funny. It, it was like a triple or some platinum, triple platinum or something, whatever. It really sold a lot of records that had Southern cross on it. And, um, which was one of my favorite Crosby Stills Nash songs. And, um, it's just really a good record, and but what a struggle that was, because you can't have you can't have CSN without C, you know? right? And 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 C <laughs> had this uh, voice that uh, nobody else has, and um, the blend the three guys had was you know I've heard bands do cover bands do CSN, and it's never the same. They they might sound amazing with their harmonies. But there's a personality to the blend of CSN that nobody gets. And um, uh, we, so we needed C to be healthy. You know? And uh, uh, eventually it, it got better. It, but it took years. But it, those, those were dark days. I, I thought that uh, it was over. And uh, as far as I, I, I think C, I thought CSN was going to hang it up and, and, and and that was uh, a bad feeling, but but they they persevered and um, they did all they can to help, could, could to help him. And, and Finnegan jumped in and helped with vocals and stuff. And um, but eventually we you know and then we did that live uh, the long uh, uh, no long time gone live thing uh, at Universal that's just killer. Yeah. Uh, uh, but um, you know but you know Cross looks pretty pretty high on that one, but. Um, but he, he pulled it off. He did good. And um, but th those were just, you know, I bet I imagine everybody might have a, a, a time in their life with, when it went a little dark and, and it got all better again. And that's good. But you, you don't forget those dark times, you know, and that was that was rough. Absolutely. Um, you've you've mentioned the song Southern Cross and, you know, I cannot hear David at all on there. You only I only hear Nash stills michael sturgis and michael finnegan yeah um i can't remember how the blend went but i know that mike finnegan was singing a lot of crosby's parts and uh, if you don't hear that that definite you know definite sound of crosby's voice in there chances are he didn't sing wow i mean mike finnegan is one of the world's best singers but there's a sound, like I said, there's a blend and a sound that is undeniable with with a CSN. And so, um, you know, uh, it, it might be now keep in mind that that particular song, you can pull it off with just two part harmony, too. It's not like it's one of those ones with demanding three part. harmony. Right. But but live, they all three sang it. And live, it's, you know, after Crosby got healthy again. They, we were out doing that song every night, and it sounded amazing. And Crosby was singing his butt off, and it sounded amazing. But, um, yeah, I can't remember what the blend was, but I think you're right. I think um, it's quite lacking of Crosby's voice on that particular song. Yeah, and the year after that was Allies, which was a couple of studio cuts, War Games, and I can't remember what the yeah, other one is. Yeah, kind of a 
pieced together thing, you know, it wasn't it wasn't thrilling. <laughs> um, but for for the listener out there, you know, a bunch of those solo Mike Finnegan records, you know, you can't you can't find them on iTunes and stuff. But on I know the Barrel yeah. of Pain, uh, pretty yep. much the back half of that song, which is uh, that's a Nash song, I think, isn't it? That's a Nash song, correct. Uh, Finnegan, he he's singing in there. He's singing his ass off. And 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 that's that's just one of many examples out there of of his great vocal ability and and vocal range. Yeah, yeah. Now, was that the first time you ever worked with him? Uh, with Mike Finnegan was yes, with uh, Crosby, Stills, yeah. and Nash. Yes. After David, you know, went to jail and wrote his thank you letter to the judge, American Dream came out in in '88. Um, yeah. And Young came back for that. Talk about that album. Wasn't that? Well, that was, it was fun. Uh, they had talked about it for a long time. And finally, Neil's, you know, uh, schedule, busy schedule. He's really busy. It opened up to where they could, um, they actually, it was a reality that they were going to do a record. And um, Neil wanted to do it kind of live up at his barn up on his property so that's what we did we loaded into a big old barn he had a stage built so we set up like a live gig and they brought the record plant truck recording truck up from la and um you know mic'd everything up and spent you know a month up there uh recording and um we did everything up there we did you know the cutting of the tracks, the overdubs, the mix, everything. The final mixing was down in L.A., but, I mean, we did everything up there except mixing, and um, um, it, it worked out pretty good. It sure was a lot of fun because it, was, uh, it wasn't traditional recording. It wasn't typical recording because we had a live setup. It wasn't like isolated booths and all this sort of stuff. Neil didn't want to do that. He wanted to be as live as we could within reason technically and, and sonically, but, um, uh, so it worked out pretty good. It was a good, I thought it was a good record. It was fun to make. And, uh, you, you co-wrote a couple of songs on there. A couple on there with Shadowlands. Uh, with, with and, yeah. And with, uh, Shadowlands and with Steven, um, uh, um, we did one. And also I had, a, uh, another one with, uh, Graham. So you got to do, uh, a song with three quarters of of the grand, of the band there, yeah. A couple of years after that, "Live It Up" came out, uh, which was yep. uh, missing Yun. Uh, right. You know, I don't know where you start with that. Whose idea was the cover art for that? Well, that was their managers, <laughs> their management, and um, uh, nobody really liked that. <laughs> so, but. They talked us into it, I guess, but not us. I, I didn't have anything to do with it. I mean, the three guys, they talked the three guys into it. I don't think Crosby ever liked it. And, and it would, you know, kudos for him for that because, uh, yeah, nobody really liked it, but the management was pushing it. And um, and that's just one of those things, you know, that it, it was done, it's done, it's in the history book, so, so be it, you know? Right. And it's kind of stupid. <laughs> you know yeah um you know with hot dogs floating around on the moon and all yeah that. I, I don't know what that was uh, who knows um maybe it was some marketing guy yeah it could have been i like i said i was 
uh, I, I was, you know, we were never with, included in that loop. That was them guys deciding with Atlantic and the producers and the designers and management and all that. And I don't know who came up with it, but um, it wasn't very good. Yeah. I mean, there's a couple of good songs on there, but, you know, it never really yeah, found it, a niche. Nah. It, it, there was a couple of good ones on there, but um, it's just one of them intermediate ones that, I, I mean, just... I don't know. Uh, I think everybody, not everybody, but most artists maybe have one of those records in their career, you yeah. know? Yeah, you can tell it's very um, uh, 80s, even though it came out in the 90s. Yeah, it was the 280s, and uh, especially for a group like CSN. Um, and I think they were just, everybody was just trying to experiment. You know, the music trend back then late 80s early 90s everything was changing and what was cool now and what wasn't cool and you know and and a lot of people uh, fell into that trap of we got to stay current and we got you know and it's like nah you know what your fans want to hear you do that you know what you do and uh and a lot of a lot of people do that there's nothing wrong with it but that a lot of people fall into that where they're 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 pushed and motivated by trends and they it, just because somebody had a hit with some weird sounds or some weird music or weird lyrics that doesn't mean that you're going to have one but uh people follow trends a lot they still do but um see that's what i love about the 60s 70s uh the music everybody was unique they they wrote and recorded what they felt and they weren't motivated by trends and all that sort of stuff exactly well, Joe, I think they kind of redeemed themselves with the Looking Forward album. Oh, yeah. That was really a good record. And, uh, of course, Young came back to the picture to uh, to do that one. Yep. And the songwriting, it, it's there. And, and they kind of go back to their, um, to their roots to an extent. Well, they brought, they brought Bill Halverson in, who made their very first record in 69 oh, wow. yeah bill halverson was the engineer on that record and bill halverson made uh, i think they made he made the first csn record and deja vu and um so they years years have gone by and they brought bill halverson back in and they got back to that old style and that old way of recording even though with all the modern day gear compared to 69 uh they they went back to that old school and uh it sounded like it it was really cool it was really fun to watch him work with bill because i, I was like being a fly on the wall like from 1969 that's the way they made those that first record which was outstanding and um uh so it was really cool to see it'd be like if you got the chance to see you know uh the beatles record uh and and uh, uh you know how they how'd you do that <laughs> you know and so uh, it was really fun to watch them um with bill halverson because they did it the way they they made the original record wasn't crosby's son james raymond on there um yes he was yeah talk about that whole thing david crosby's son that he completely forgot about he, they they bumped they, they found each other in life and here found out that not only did they 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 were so thrilled and and blown away that they found each other but then Crosby found out that his son was this and he is this brilliant keyboard player 
songwriter and art artist and he's like wow uh you know runs in the family you know i mean this talent and james is uh, remarkable and um and it was so great to to see those two together and you know that that was years had gone by and um <clears throat> that uh they didn't know each other or had, had never had contact and all of a sudden they have contact and, and next thing you know he's playing with david and working with us and it was just a wonderful thing to see that go down and then of course they had the uh the cpr band that did a few albums yeah <clears throat> yeah with um uh with jeff pivar on guitar and uh, that was some really good records there that's uh that jazzy rock kind of stuff jazz rock that's what kind of what that's what kind of uh, james raymond is is more of a jazz rocker and and which would really fit in with Crosby's weird tuning and kind of strange chords and melodies that he loves. Those two were a match made in heaven, you know? Absolutely. And uh, yeah. And so that whole, you know, cause Crosby's, you know, Crosby's big idol was, you know, uh, um, um, I'm sorry. I can't remember. Her name. Um, why am I not remembering her name anyway? Um, and she used all these weird, uh, tunings and, um, uh, and that's what he did. And so James and him fit together so well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and then that kind of ran its course, that album and tour. And um, yeah. sometime in the mid 2000s, uh, I guess Stephen called you and, and you uh, did some stuff for the Man Alive CD. Yeah, we, we, uh, Stephen wanted to make a solo record. <clears throat> so we worked up at his house. And um, uh, that was a lot of fun because we were under no pressure to get it done. We just would, went, once in a while, we'd get together at his house and we'd keep working on it and all that. <clears throat> and it wasn't like um, a band project. We brought in different players and all that. And um, But that was, that was real special. It was really cool to hang with him, like at his house and then talk and work in a little bit and hang out go to dinner and whatever watch sports on tv then go down to the studio work a little it was a lot different than making a traditional record you know and uh but there was some good stuff on that record absolutely and and he's got again another uh couple of latin things on there oh yeah oh yeah and um you've you've managed to make some albums along the way as well bearing your name uh the first one being roller coaster weekend yeah <laughs> way back in 74 75 yeah the roller coaster you're on um talk about getting the cover photos for that album well <clears throat> i don't like roller coasters so um that was in a, an amusement park in, in in new jersey and um uh I had to sit in the, uh, uh, the, the, the second seat and the photographer sat backwards in the front seat. They closed the park for us. We went early before the park was open. And so I don't like roller coasters, period. So uh, the first run, the, you know, the photographer grabs two, three cameras. He's got lenses on his on his. Uh, wrapped around his, his neck, you know, and, and he's got all this film and the cameras. Well, anyway, the, the first run down the hill, everything was flying all over the place. He didn't realize what he should have done was brought one camera and that's it. And so he didn't get a single shot. So 
we had to go and do it all over again, which I hated. And uh, this time he just took one Nikon and me and him, and we had to take the whole roller coaster ride again. And uh, but we got it done, you know, and it, it's it's a cool picture on the front, you know. And but um, no, I don't like roller coasters. <laughs> there, uh, there's some irony to that. Um, yeah. <laughs> in 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 the fact that you know you you had to kind of I guess suffer through it um, for a cover photo. Well, I, they Atlantic Records decided when they they heard the title of the record you know they said oh i know what we want to do and i'm like oh no <laughs> so so we had to do it because they wanted to do it and you know and like i said we got through it and it wasn't it wasn't terrible thank god it wasn't one of these death-defying new coasters on these amusement parks now uh that are like crazy uh this was an old-fashioned wooden roller coaster and i'd been on them before but i'm not crazy about them but um at least uh it wasn't uh, too too death-defying exactly then um you did plantation harbor yeah and that's that's down in florida of course yeah with bill simzik and the album title came from that's the harbor we pulled into with the boat making the joe walsh record was plantation harbor and i always liked that name and uh so we did a song about that and um uh that was that album that was at around 81 that's a that's a fun opener on there as well yeah, that that uh, that gets a lot of airplay still, and um, um, uh, the guitar player on that record, on, on that song on Plantation Harbor, that's a guy named Little Beaver. He was the guy that the the amazing guitar parts he played on that song, uh, "Cleanup Woman" by Betty Wright. Oh, really? And yeah, and that was he lived in Florida, and Bill Simzik knew him, and he said. Hey, we ought to get Little Beaver on this record. I went, Are you kidding? That would be perfect. So Little Beaver came over and he played the guitar on that song. Wow. That had to have been special. Yeah. He, and he was, oh, man, he was so cool. He was just the coolest. And the party came up, which was amazing. And uh, I was just so proud to have him on that record. And he really made that record. So uh, and that's the only song he played on, on that album. But uh, he, he was really great. Absolutely. Then many years go by, and and you release one called "Speaking in Drums." That's correct. Yeah, I don't. I I write all the time, and but I don't always. I don't have time to make records because I'm too busy on the road or whatever. But I really love making records, and um, I'm almost done with one right now uh, because of the you know because of COVID and the and the pandemic. I've been, I've been able to be home and could put together another album. So. Um, uh, with that lack of touring, I got time right now. But uh, yeah, I've got my I've got three albums, but and they're they're so far apart because I just don't you know it takes a lot of work and a lot of time to to make a record, and and I've been thankfully been busy. Uh, and, but now with the with the virus thing, I've been home and uh, able to concentrate on writing and stuff, and um, so we're we're pretty close to getting another one out. Well, that's cool. Uh, you'll you'll have to keep me in the loop on that. I will. Yeah. Um, then you you wrote a book as well. Yeah. I, um, uh, years and years of of touring uh, yields years and years of hilarious stories. <laughs> Our book is called Backstage Pass. It was written by my wife Susie, and um, it's just there's like 750 photos in it. There's it's a 
all fun. It is no dirt. It, it, we get such good reviews because it's a no dirt book. And I mean, I don't really care for those kind of books. Um, uh, this is, uh, you know, all these people in my book are all my friends and, and, and they all have these funny things they've done through all the years. And, and, and not everybody gets a chance to be on a tour bus or backstage or in a studio or where have right. And, and, and that's what this is all about. And for years after, sh after shows, you get on the bus and you have something to eat and sit around, you tell stories, whatever. Everybody's got road dog stories, you know? And so for some reason, I always had the, the best ones or the funniest ones, not because I'm a comedian, but because of the characters I worked with. So, um, they always said, Hey, you got to write a book. Well, you know, I said, I don't want to write a book. I'm not a writer. I'm a drummer. And, and they said, no, no, no you got to write a book. These stories are funny. And I said, ah, whatever. So I go home and I tell my wife, everybody's bugging me to write a book. And she goes, yeah, you should write a book. So I said, all right, but I'm not writing it. because." You know, so my wife did a brilliant job writing it. And um, it's available on my website, www.joevitaliondrums.com. And we sign them, personally sign them, personalize them to you. And, and it's a funny, funny book. I've never gotten one bad review. I guess uh, you, you put the appropriate stories in there that folks have wanted to hear. Well, it's just, you know, it's just stories that nobody ever knows because it's, it's behind-the-scenes stories. And I'll tell you what, uh, you know, unless you go on a rock and roll tour, there's some funny stuff that goes on and not not like like you know ornery or criminal <laughs> not like trashing hotel rooms it's 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 more like uh just funny stuff that happens and um you run into people or the, the situations or or you know you're supposed to go on and and what have why isn't he here yet and the reasons and it's endless the stories and um you know, all these, you know, all the, the celebrities and stars I've ever worked for, you know, they, they're funny people, you know, they, they got a lot of funny stuff. And, um, so like I said, it, it, I, I never wanted to write a tell all dirt book. People have, um, approached me about that when I was with the Eagles. I can't tell you how many writers called me and they wanted to make a book and tell me all the dirt. on. I said, get out of here. I'd hang up on them. So you know, that's why we did the book we did because it's a, it's so much Absolutely. fun. And, um, one thing I do want to hit you up on, um, is having a camera with you, um, to, to capture these moments. I've seen a few of the pictures inside the book and what, what inspired you to, to have a camera with you? Well, I think it's because uh, from when I was way back in the childs, we opened for a lot of big bands at the time. You know, we opened for the Beach Boys and we opened for the Buckinghams and all the big bands of the day. Right. right? And uh, we opened for the Young Rascals and all the back then in the 60s. We opened for a lot of big bands. And I always had my camera because I wanted to take pictures of them, you know, and I didn't have the nerve to ask to have a picture with them. Uh, but I took pictures of them. And so uh, from that, from way back, I always had a camera. And um, and heck, you know, I mean, most of the pictures in my book are, you know, uh, three quarters of them are like film cameras. It's not like today with a phone. I mean, you could get zillions of 
you know, video and photo. And, uh, but they were all just, uh, uh, film, uh, pictures. And, um, uh, but I would try to take as many photos as I could just on the, you know, if there was something funny, I, I always carried a, a road bag and there was always, my camera was always in there and it always had film in it. And so I would try to grab photos and I wish I'd have, actually, I wish I'd have taken more, um, uh, I missed a lot of uh, opportunities, but um, I did capture quite a bit. One, I know um, you've talked about in, in other interviews you wish you had a video camera for was when Joe Walsh and your dad were jamming. Oh, my God. <laughs> my dad made homemade wine, and uh, that's already dangerous. And Joe Walsh, we we played in Cleveland, and the whole band came over to my mother's house who made this in incredible meal and afterwards my dad said come on downstairs and he broke open the wine and him and joe walsh started on it and and my dad and my joe had his guitar with him and my dad had his accordion and they were drunk and they jammed and oh my god what i would do to have that on film it was hilarious they were singing the blues and joe was teaching my dad how to sing the blues <laughs> it was it was just I, I couldn't even begin to tell you how funny it was. And yes, those are the moments that, you know, we didn't have phones back then and we didn't have video. Even if we had uh, Logan, even if we had a video camera, it was silent. It was it was, you know, they, it was just super eight or eight millimeters silent that you wouldn't have never you wouldn't have even heard it. So right. um, until Betamax came out with a camera, you know, um, yeah, I mean, so, yeah, there were moments that, uh, priceless moments, I guess, they're just live and die in my mind. You know, I, I, I'll take them to my grave, but the priceless moments, I could still see it and hear it. It was so funny. We were dying laughing. And needless to say, um, I think my dad and Joe woke up with a hell of a headache. <laughs> <laughs> well, so that's how folks can, can support you. They can go to... Joe Vitale on drums.com, right? Correct. Joe Vitale on drums.com. And we sell our book and CDs and all that in there. And um, <clears throat> it's a good deal. Um, and uh, we sign them. And uh, I guarantee you, you, you will laugh. We, we've had comments galore about how funny it is. And, and we're so, we're so proud of the book. So we appreciate any business. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Joe, one thing I love to do in, in these things is open it up at the end for uh, the artist to kind of share about whatever's on their mind. You know, if they got advice for, you know, young people or just just whatever it is to um, to kind of go ahead and in, um, insert their, you know, whatever. Well, I um, I would just pass on uh, what my father taught me. My father was a musician, so he knew all about this. And he uh, he saw my struggles and he saw my uh, depressions at times when, when you know, we'd show up for a gig and there were like, you know, 10 people there. And uh, or, you know, the owner bailed and we didn't get paid. And there's a lot of things, you know, we went through. And, and uh, my father always told me, look, he said uh, that, that that happens in all walks of life. He says, but one thing, remember, and I'll never forget this. And I'm sure you've heard this before, but it sticks with me to this very day. And I couldn't 
be more clear about telling young musicians this. No matter what you're doing out there, uh, if there's 10 people or 10,000, play your heart out and do your best. Because when the night that I was so-called, the way they call it, discovered, whatever you want to call it, with Ted Nugent, that was that that discovery there got me out of clubs and put me on a rock and roll national tour. So, and the only reason was because we played at a club and there was about 12 people in this big club. It was just one of those nights, you know, and a lot of musicians, they get attitudes and they're like, ah, this sucks and blah, blah. Well, I remember what my father said and I kicked butt that night. I played my heart out and, and then I packed up and went home and I was like, well, at least I did my job. And then, <clears throat> two three days later i get a call from ted nugent he was there and i just had to thank my dad i called my dad and i, I told him the story and he says don't ever forget that and and we, we learned that when we we toured in the early 70s we opened for kiss kiss was they just were starting out nobody really knew that much about them and we played this dive with 50 people in it and kiss come out of the dressing room and they got all their makeup and the clothes and all that and we're looking at them like what are you guys nuts? There's 50 people out there. And we learned that we watched them and they were very inspiring. They told us, they said, hey, man, it, rock and roll, man. The show must go on. And again, I remember what my father said. So any young musicians or any musicians of any age, remember that, that <clears throat> you're doing what you love. So love what you're doing. Well, there you have it, everyone. And that is my interview with Joe Vitale. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you like what you've heard, be sure to check out some of my previous episodes. Be sure to share with your friends, family, and neighbors. And tell them how much you enjoy listening to LV's Music Corner. Until next time, I am Logan. You are listening to LV's Music Corner. Be humble and don't stumble.